0: Well, if you were here last week, uh, Jonathan taught, and uh, if you're not here this week, it's because Jonathan taught, and uh, you just chose not to come back. Um, no, Jonathan did a great job, and I'm trying to give he and uh, Chase opportunities to teach and kind of learn and grow, and it gives me a chance to criticize them, which is fun, and, uh, uh, oh wait, no, critique them. That's the word, yeah, critique. Um, but last week, he introduced you to this uh, chart and it's the cycle of sin, and uh, we're going to look at this virtually every week because this is the story of the book of Judges, this, this cycle of sin that begins with sin, the sin of the people of Israel, and they forsake the Lord, they turn away from the Lord, and they seek other gods, and that's ultimately the greatest sin you can do is to turn from God to anything else. And so they sin, as a result, God brings suffering in the form of plunderers, the the very people they chose not to get rid of, not to do, as God said, and and rid the nation of Canaanites. It's the Canaanites who God uses to punish them, and as a result, they suffer. The suffering causes them to cry out in sorrow, and then God sends salvation in the form of a judge, a deliverer, and there's a period of peace, and then the cycle starts again. as you see, it's, it's, it's not a, a cycle that's on a horizontal plane. It's a cycle that's going down the drain. It gets worse and worse. And so we saw last week uh, two judges, Othniel and Ehud. They were fairly good judges. And then it's going to start going downhill this week and into the following weeks. So I've called this, this lesson for this week with friends like these. As I've studied this, the thing that jumps out at me is that there's six characters in this story, chapter four, chapter five. So you've got Barak, you've got Deborah, you've got uh, Jab- Jabin, the uh, king of the Canaanites, you've got his general Sisera, then you're going to get introduced to a guy named Heber and his wife Jael. So you have six characters in this story, none of whom seem to fit together. Uh, they, they, they have nothing in common. They come from all kinds of backgrounds. you got a couple of women, four men, Canaanites, Jews, Midianites, and yet God, in his sovereign will, puts these people together to accomplish his will. And here's what I need you to to think about as we go through this study this morning. I, I desperately need you to look at this study through the lens of God's sovereignty, because that's what this is all about how God sovereignly works behind the scenes in ways that we don't normally see. You know, the sovereignty of God is usually best seen in retrospect as you look backwards and go, wow, that was God. I didn't see it at the time. See, these people aren't necessarily going to see the hand of God, and they're not going to necessarily know that it was God who was leading them to do what they did, to be where they were. And yet, that's the story of the Bible. That's the story of redemption. That's the story of the God who we worship. So we're going to look at Deborah, and we're going to look at a guy named Barak. We don't know a lot about either one of these characters. Here's all we really know. If you boil it all down from the passage, we know this. Deborah is a prophet, a prophetess, and she's also called a judge. So she's this woman who God raises up at some point, In the life of the people of Israel, she's raised up to be a prophetess. She speaks for God. She is a truth-teller. Now, it's not rare for there to be female truth-tellers or prophets. There were others in the Old Testament. She's one of them. She's also called a judge. It says she judged the people, and that term can um, mean that she's a judge like Othniel Nahud, which some commentators believe she was or she's a judge in the sense of a judge who settles disputes. You remember the story of um, Moses when he was leading the people across the wilderness, and his father-in-law comes to visit, and his father-in-law sees Moses settling disputes. All the people would bring their disputes, land disputes, uh, marital disputes, financial disputes. They'd all bring their problems to him, and he would settle them. And it says that day and night, people were lined up waiting for him to settle their disputes. Now remember, you've got to remember there's like millions of Jews. And so this guy was wearing himself out trying to solve everybody's problems. And so his father-in-law goes, man, you're not going to live long if you don't get some help. Why don't you raise up some judges, appoint some judges, some men who are qualified who can help you settle these disputes. So he appoints 70 judges. And they answer to him, but they start handling all the disputes going on. That's what this woman is doing. She's a judge. She's a prophet. But then we got Barak. We don't know very much about him at all, but he's an Israelite. He's obviously a warrior. Uh, We're going to find out he's got access to 10,000 soldiers. And he's just this guy, not unlike you and I, who's going to be called into the story by God through this prophetess, Deborah. So, both of them are, are going to be clearly used by God, instruments in the hands of holy God. And the other thing I need you to realize is that, guess what? So are you. You're an instrument in the hand of God. Well, I'm not a prophetess. I'm, I'm not a warrior. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm a this, I'm a that. No, if you're in Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you are an instrument in the hands of God. And you are here for a reason. And God has something he wants to do through you. These two people and the four others that I mentioned just a second ago are all strategically in this story having been placed there by God. They're not just there by happenstance. It's not karma, kismet, uh, blind luck, fate. This is the sovereign hand of God who placed these people in the story, in this part of the world, at this point in time, so that he could use them. And they have a role to play. Each has a very specific role to play, and we're going to see that. And all throughout their story, you're going to see the sovereignty of God. But you have to look for it. It's so easy to read these stories and and miss God in the middle of the story and just go, well, you know, that's cool how Deborah did that. That's cool how Barak did that. How Ahud took his sword and stabbed the king, and it disappeared into the folds of the fat. And, you know, that's a great story. But where is God in the story? See, that's what we want to look for. So as, as I um, started wrestling with this particular story with Deborah and Barak, chapter 4 and chapter 5, I saw the sovereignty of God, but I wanted to go back and look at, well, is this true through the rest of these guys, these prophets, these judges? And so I, I want to go back and look at Othniel real quickly. And, and Jonathan covered Othniel and Ehud last week, and he did a great job. But I want to point out the sovereignty of God in the story because Othniel, interestingly enough, is born into the family of Caleb. Who's Caleb? Caleb is one of the 12 spies who came back and the one of only two who came back and said, yes, there's enemies in the land. The land is rich. The land is bountiful. It's just like God said, and we can take them. He and Joshua both, both came back and said, we can do this with the help of God. But 10 other spies said, no, we can't do this. The people listened to them, so they didn't go into the promised land, and they ended up wandering for 40 years and dying in the wilderness. Caleb continued on. Caleb, at this point, is probably in his 80s, at this point in the story. And Othniel is born to Caleb's brother, so he's his nephew, And that's important. So he gets to watch what godliness looks like, what godly leadership looks like. He sees it in his uncle. He probably saw it in his own father that the family of Caleb was a godly family. And so they were blessed by having lived under Caleb's leadership. And it's interesting that when Caleb in chapter 1 gets ready to finish conquering his allotment of land and getting rid of the The Canaanites living in it, he's too old to go to war. So he goes, who in my family will step up and go and take Deborah, this city, this Canaanite city? And who steps up? Othniel. Why did Othniel step up? Because I think Othniel had been raised in an environment where he knew what leadership looked like and he knew how to trust God. And so he steps up. And as a result, he's given the hand of Caleb's daughter. Now, if you're thinking at all this morning, you're going, hey, he married his cousin. Yeah, you're right, and he's not from Arkansas, okay? (laughs) Don't get hung up on that. That was not rare. That was not unknown in those days for Israelites to marry within their own families because of wanting to keep the purity of the Israelite race. So he, yes, he's given the hand of Caleb Caleb's daughter, his cousin, and he marries her. But the point is that he's used by God and he becomes the first judge of Israel. And so you got to look back and think, how did all this happen? Was this, again, just happenstance, good luck, kismet, karma? No, this was the hand of God preparing this young man to be there when the time was right to step up to defeat the, the people living in Deborah, to get the hand of Caleb's daughter and to become the first judge of the people of Israel. Well, how about Ahud? Ahud's that fam- the famous story, that you know, kind of infamous story of this guy who kills this judge, and it's graphic, and it's full of all kinds of details, but what's the point? Well, he's born a Benjamite. That's important, but what's even more important is this description that's given, and, and Jonathan touched on it last week, that he's called a left-handed man. And you got to stop when you read something like, like that and go, well, why is this even important? Why is this designation in the text? And Jonathan made point of the fact that this word, left-handed man, could actually mean that he's, he's crippled, he's disabled in his right hand, and by virtue of that fact, he has to be left-handed. But I'm, I'm going to take this a different track this morning, because as I went back and looked at it, and as, as I looked at this word, I began to see some other things there that I think point out the sovereignty of God. So what, what does it mean to be a left-handed man? Well, let's fast forward to chapter 20. It says, The people of Benjamin, and Ehud is a Benjamite, mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men of the Benjamites. So catch this, 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Same word. Now, it takes a real stretch of the imagination to think that all 700 of these men were crippled in the right hand. That just doesn't make any sense. And it says they're chosen. They were designated. They were set apart. Why? To be left-handed men. And it says everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Now, it's really hard to use a sling with just one hand. So what is this text seemingly telling us? Well, it's interesting that Benjamin, that name means son of the right hand. And yet there's 700 chosen men of the Benjamites, sons of the right hand, who are left-handed. Now, I think what's going on here is that somewhere along the way, these men were chosen, probably at an early age, and they were trained to be left-handed. They bound their right hand and forced them to use their left hand so that they could become what? Ambidextrous. Ambidextrous. They could fight with either hand. Now, that was a huge advantage in that day and age in the warfare that they conducted because when you go into warfare and you're fighting against predominantly right-handed men and you're left-handed, you have a distinct advantage. Why? Because they're carrying their shield in their left hand exposing their right. It's it's the same thing in boxing. It's the same thing in martial arts. If you're left-handed, you have a distinct advantage. And so what I see in this is the sovereign hand of God who trained this young man to become left-handed. It also tells us in the text that he was a swordsman. He was a craftsman. He made his own sword. The sword he stuck in the king's belly, he made. It's hard to make a sword, to forge a sword with one hand, if he's truly crippled in his right hand. So I think he's left-handed. He was chosen early on to be so, but it was the sovereign will of God for that to happen. Now you may say, well, he chose to do it or his general chose him to do that. True, but ultimately as believers in Christ, we have to back up and go, but who's really in control of this? And it's God. So God had all this happen so that he could be prepared to do what needed to be done and to kill the king. I love, I love the story of Esther. We've taught it here in men's ministry before. The book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned. He's just never mentioned. And yet he's all over the pages of that book because he's operating behind the scenes in order to accomplish his divine will. And in the story, if you remember it, Esther is a young Jewish girl who by a series of interesting coincidental events becomes the queen of the pagan king. And she is placed in this area of prominence and finds out that there is a decree that's been made by the emperor. He's been tricked into making a decree to carry, to kill all the Jews living in the land. Her uncle Mordecai finds out and he goes to her And here's what he tells her. He says, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives, me, and all the rest of us Jews are going to die. And then he says this, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. You see what he's saying? He, He understands the sovereignty of God. He understands that God is providential. And Esther, you are here because God wants you here. And you have a role to play. And she gets it because she goes, all right, but if, if I walk into the king without being invited, I will be a dead person. But pray for me, and I will pray and ask God what I need to do. And she decides, I need to be faithful. I need to step up, and she does. And the rest of the story is God spares the people of Israel. But see, the key is you were born for such a time as this. Now let's stop for just a second and bring it into the 21st century and into this room. Why are you here? And you may be thinking right now, I'm not sure why I'm here, why I got up, why I came. But why are you here? Why are you on this planet? Here's what I know about every guy in the room. At some point, your mom and dad decided to have sex and you're the result. And they may have regretted that decision but you're here because they made a decision. But really, you're here because God is sovereign. You're here for a reason. You're in Christ because God chose it to be so. You're in this room because God chose it to be so. Yes, you set the alarm. You got up. You got in your car. You drove yourself here. But guys, God is sovereign overall. And what I need you to understand is that God has a purpose for your life. God has something he wants to accomplish in you, through you, to benefit the kingdom. Just like these individuals that we're going to be looking at. See, Daniel says, God controls the course of world events. He removes kings and he sets up other kings. You are in your job for a reason if you have a job. You are retired for a reason if you're retired. You live where you live. You married who you married. You bore the children you bore because God is sovereign and God has a plan. And if you don't see that, you you live your life thinking you're the one in control and you're the one who's the master of your fate. The story of Joseph is a reminder of the sovereignty of God because if you recall, Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob who was sold into slavery because of jealousy of his brothers and he ends up the second most powerful man in the land of Egypt through a series of seemingly coincidental strange events. And his family, Jacob and his brothers and all their family, 70 people have to leave Canaan to escape a famine. And they end up in Egypt, not knowing that Joseph is there, not even knowing he's alive, not knowing that he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. And he rescues them and he saves them. And he tells his brothers when they find out who he is, and they're living in fear that he's going to wreak revenge on them. He says, God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. See, Joseph understood that all the things he had been through, uh, being sold into slavery, ending up as Potiphar's slave, being accused falsely by his wife of rape, and then being thrown into prison, and all the things that happened to him, he knew that God was sovereignly moving in his life and that he was there for a purpose. What's your purpose? Why are you on this planet? Why are you even alive? Why do you breathe breath? Why are you here? See, God has you here for a reason. And so what we're going to look at is this third cycle of sin that takes place in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and it covers two different chapters, but they're really companion chapters because they approach this story of sin, suffering, sorrow, and salvation from two different ways. Chapter... Four and chapter five mirror one another, and, and the way they do it is one is poetry and the other one is prose. Chapter five is a song, and it's, as we see here, it's sung by Deborah and Barak, these two characters, and it's after the fact. After God has done what he's done through them, they sing this song. So one's poetry, music, song, the other one is prose, one's historical. Chapter four is going to tell us the history of what happened, the details surrounding the events. And the other one's going to tell us through celebratory song what happened and how God did it. And you got to read both to understand what is going on in the story. So what happens? Well, Deborah and Barak sing. And here's what they sing. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Now, 14 times you're going to see the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, if you read through the whole chapter. God is, is the one they're celebrating because at the end of the day, God's the one who accomplished the victory. They go on, they say, "Hero O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. And keep that in your mind because that's going to come up as we look at chapter 4. It says, the mountains quake before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be. So here in the song, they're recounting the situation that was going on when God stepped in, when God did what he did. It says, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I, Deborah, arose. Now, this sounds like Deborah's bragging about herself, like she's gotten a little cocky. But all she's saying is, I got used by God. If you've ever been used by God, that's a euphoric feeling. If God has ever used you to lead someone to Christ or if God has ever spoken through you to encourage somebody or help somebody, it's it's an incredible feeling to think that the God of the universe would use you, and I think that's all she's saying. He raised up me, Deborah, a mother of Israel. He he raised me up to accomplish his will, and that phrase, mother of Israel, is is really a not derogatory, but it's, she's diminishing her role. I'm just a mother in Israel. I'm, I'm like any other mother. I'm just like any other woman, yet God used me to accomplish his will. But here's the key. Verse 8, in this song, she reveals what the problem is. When new gods were chosen. What's going on there? What is she admitting in this song? The problems she's just described are the result of this. Idolatry, apostasy, forsaking God, turning to other gods rather than the one God who had led them where they were. And as a result, war was in the gates. The shield or spear can't be found among 40,000 in Israel. The punishment has come upon them because they can't stay faithful to God. It's that cycle of sin, forsaking God. So God brings persecution, punishment. And so she says, my heart goes out. I I grieve over what's going on, but the song is going to end in a positive way because God stepped in. Even though they were unfaithful, God is faithful. But she paints this really bleak picture. She says the highways are empty. Nobody's traveling. Why? Because the Canaanites are waylaying anybody who is on the roads. There's no commerce going on. Nobody's going to market. Nobody's trading goods. The economy's in in a bad state. The villages have been abandoned. Why? Because they're all under siege. Everybody's moving to the hills. And you're going to see in in the next judge we look at with Gideon, it gets even worse. People are hiding. People are trying to get away because they are under siege and they're fearful of what's going to happen because they are completely outgunned and outmanned. See, once again, they've been unfaithful, and once again, God has brought punishment, and once again, they're going to go through suffering, and they're going to realize that we need God. So let's go back. We've heard part of the song of celebration. They've kind of painted the picture. Let's go back to chapter 4, the history of what happened. And it's not a pretty picture. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. The people of Israel again, and you're going to see that word over and over again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now, who's Ahud? Second judge. The guy who stabbed the king and his sword disappeared in the folds of the fat. You know, we know the story, but he dies. And as soon as he dies, what do they do? They forsake God again. And what does God do? He sells them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And then the commander of his army was Sisera. So here's this guy, Jabin, he's a Canaanite king, has a lot of power, he's punishing and he's he's, uh, taking advantage of the Israelites and he's being used by God. The sovereign hand of God is using this pagan king to punish the people of God. And this guy named Sisera, who's the commander of his army, is being used by God. We've seen that all through the Old Testament, how God uses even pagan nations, Babylon, Assyria, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, all these pagan kings to do his will. And we're going to see the same thing here. It's God who is selling them into the hand of Jabin, the king, and Sisera, the general. We're told that Sisera lives in a place called Heresheth Hogayim, and that'll become important in a second. And it says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron. Where have we seen that before? Remember chapter 1? when the people came to God and said, who should go first to conquer the Canaanites? And God says, the tribe of Judah. And it says, Judah goes out and they have victory after victory, after victory, after victory, until they see what? 900 chariots of iron. And then what do they do? Man, we we can't beat them. This is too much for God. And so they didn't follow through They failed, and then you see failure after failure after failure after failure. So here we are once again, 900 chariots of iron. They're still there. They haven't gone away. And he's using them to oppress the people of Israel for how long? 20 years. And I'm going to harp on this, guys, because this is something we blow right past. It says, then the people of Israel cried out. When did they cry out? After 20 years. That's why it says, then, then they cried out, when? Year one? No. Year two? No. Year 10? 15? 16? 18? No. 20. How stupid do you have to be? Well, before you throw the Israelites under the bus, how stupid do you and I have to be before we finally cry out, I mean, I have been in so many situations where I just stubbornly refuse to cry out. I can fix this. I'm a smart guy. I have all kinds of wherewithal, and I've got a credit card, and I can, I can fix this problem, and I can bail myself out, and it, it may take two years and three years and four years. And finally, when I have no more money, <laughs> no more tricks up my sleeve, I've exhausted all my resources, I go, God, could you kind of help me here? See, that's all we're seeing here, but it took 20 years, 20 years of oppression and suffering. See, God's punishing them. Why does God punish us? Because he's trying to get our attention. We saw week one, he's trying to perfect us. He's trying to perfect them. But it's going to take 20 years before they cry out. And you're going to see this pattern, the length of time is going to increase, it seems, for the people of Israel before they start to cry out. They're willing to suffer before they ever bow the knee before God. But eventually, it took 20 years, they finally get sorrowful, they finally cry out, and God sends help. What an incredible, faithful God we have, who after 20, you know, 20 years, I'm giving up. You know, I'm like, you guys... Phew forget it. You're dumber than I thought. No, God is faithful. God, even when we delay, he hears and he answers. So they seek his help. And it says, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Why? Because Jabin had 900 chariots of iron and he was oppressing the people for 20 years. It took 20 years and 900 chariots before they cried out. That's pretty significant. 20 years of abject suffering and 900 chariots of iron. See, sometimes in my life and in your life, it takes something really significant, some real major implosion before we cry out to God. Maybe it's the, you're on the edge of bankruptcy. Maybe it's because your wife has just told you, I'm leaving you. I am fed up. I am done with you. And it's like the alarm goes off and you're like, oh my gosh, it's worse than I thought. No, it's been bad all along. You just haven't noticed it, or you've been unwilling and too stubborn to cry out. So what does God do? Look at verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. All we know about this woman is in this verse. She's a prophetess. She speaks for God, and she's the wife of this guy named Lapidoth, who we have no knowledge of, and what does he do, and who he is. It just tells us she's a woman who's married to a man and she's judging Israel when? At that time. What time? 20 years into suffering. How long has she been doing it? Probably for 20 years. She's been judging and prophesying for 20 years. She's been doing what God has called her to do. It says she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, which is way in the south, miles and miles and miles away from where all of this action is taking place. So she's just down doing her job, and it says the people of Israel came to her at that time. What time? 20 years into their suffering. They come to her for judgment. What's going on here? Are they coming to get their land dispute settled, or they're having a marital issue and they come and they want Deborah to solve it? No. The context is 20 years into their suffering, the people of Israel show up at her doorstep down south in Ephraim, and they come to her for judgment. I love this from Daniel Block. He says, when the sons of Israel come to Deborah for judgment, they're not asking her to solve their legal disputes, but to give them the divine answer to their cries. The fact that the Israelites come to her instead of the priest reflects the failure of the established priestly institution to maintain contact with God. Here's what's interesting. If you look at a map, for them to come from the north and come all the way to the south where she is, they've got to go past two places, Bethel and Shiloh. Bethel and Shiloh are two significant spiritual places where priests are, but they don't go to the priests. They go to this prophetess, this relatively unknown prophetess who's way down in the south. They go to her to speak to God, which says wonders and not significant wonders about the state of the priestly office at this point in time. But they go to her, all the way from the north, up there in that kind of purple area at the very top, all the way to the purple area down at the bottom. That's a long trek. They're desperate. So they go between Bethel and Ramah, down near Ephraim, in order to hear from this prophetess Deborah. And what does she say? What happens? As a result of their cry, she's sent and she summons this guy named Barak. Why? Why Barak? We don't know. But it's obviously God telling her to go get this gentleman named Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, now listen here, she's speaking for God. She is a prophetess. She's giving him a word from God. And here's what she says. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Barak, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So here comes this guy, Barak, has no idea why he's been summoned. He shows up at her doorstep under the palm, and she says, you've been commissioned by God, and here's your job. Go gather 10,000 of your men and go to the Kidron Valley, and you're going to do battle with Sisera and his 900 chariots and all his troops. Now, can you stop, just stop and think what this guy's thinking at this point in time? Where did you get my number? <laughs> what, what why why me? And he's also thinking, because he's a general and a soldier, he's thinking, I'm gonna go, you're telling me I'm gonna go to battle in the Kidron Valley, which is a flat plain, which is the perfect environment for what? Chariots. You're an idiot. This is crazy. This makes no sense from a military perspective, but she's very clear and she's speaking for God. So when she says, I will draw out Sisera, that's God speaking. And God's telling Barak, I want you to go with your 10,000 troops and I'm going to draw out Sisera. Oh, that's great. You're going to call Sisera and his 900 chariots and his troops, but then God says, and I'll give them into your hand. I'm going to draw them out and I'll give them into your hand. All you need to do is go. Go don't miss this. This guy, we don't know anything about him, but he's been challenged by God, commissioned by God. And what's he say? Well, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Man, what a commitment. What a sign of commitment on this guy's part. If you go with me, Deborah, what is he thinking? I don't have a clue. This is a woman. She's the wife of Lapidoth. She's a prophetess. She's a judge, but she ain't a soldier. The only thing I can think is she, she's some kind of good luck charm. Man, you, well, you, you're the one that gave me the message, so if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go, I'm not going to go. Do you, do you catch what's going on here? I will go, but. How many times have you ever said that to God? Now, maybe you're not in those words, but God has clearly spoken to you and gone, well, now it's not a good time. I'm a little busy right now. I don't feel ready right now. I'm not prepared. I don't want to do that. And we just say, no, I will, but... See, this guy is being given a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now, he doesn't necessarily want it, but he has been chosen by God to go up against the enemy of God to see the will of God done and the glory of God accomplished. But he's reluctant. He's reticent. I'll go, but only if you go with me. And I think he's thinking she's going to go no way. I'm not going with you. Hey, I'm just a prophetess. I'm just a judge. I don't fight battles. And he said, well, if you don't want to go, I'm not going. And he's going to be a little bit surprised at her answer. See, what he misses is what she's telling him. He's missing God's word and he's ignoring God's command. Because here's what she said. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Barak, to go gather your men? This is your battle. This is your calling. This is what God has told you to do. And here's what I believe. I believe he was meant to be the deliverer. He was meant to accomplish something great for God. He had the men. He had the experience. He was the warrior. He had been there before. He was to be used by God, and he had been promised victory by God, but he said, but to God. And what's interesting in this story is that he is going to be part of the victory. He is going to accomplish. He is going to be faithful. As a matter of fact, he's in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews in the list of the faithful. His name's there. And yet, he was reticent and reluctant. Listen to what she says to him in verse 9 I'll go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, just think that you're all men, right? If you're confused, ask the guy next to you. But you're all men. You know how men think. Think about a woman saying this to you. And he's probably got some of his buddies standing there next to him. And she's basically saying, okay, yeah, you're going to go. But the road you've decided to take, you're going to get no glory. What's the only reason we ever go into battle? Glory. And he's going to get no Glory. And this had to be a slap in the face to him. She says, God's going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, who immediately does he think she's talking about? Her. But she's not. I don't think Deborah has a clue who she's talking about. I don't think she thought it was her. But she basically tells him, you're going to get no glory. And that's significant. See, the path of reluctance never leads to reward. If you want to say no to God, if you want to say but to God, if you want to stiff-arm God... God will still work in your life, but guess what? You'll get no reward for that. You'll get no joy in that. You'll never enjoy the peace of God, the contentment of God, the joy of being used by God. It just isn't going to happen. And see, this guy we're going to see is going to be part of the battle. He's going to be part of the victory. But the glory is going to go to somebody other than him because he was reluctant and reticent to be used by God. See, in 1 Samuel 12, 11, it tells us the Lord sent Jeroboam, who's Gideon, Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, these judges, and he delivered you out of the hand of your enemies. This is later on, God telling the people of Israel about these judges, Gideon and Barak. See, he's listed as a judge here, even though he got no glory. See, I think in the story, it's really not Deborah who was meant to be the judge, the deliverer, it was this guy. But see, he was reticent. He was reluctant. So what happens? Well, everything takes place, like she said. Deborah goes with him. He calls out the troops. He gets 10,000 men, and they go into battle. Deborah goes with him. And then in verse 11, look at this. This is so fascinating to me. We meet this guy named Heber the Kenite. Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and he had pitched his tent as far away as the Oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Who cares? Why is this even in the Bible? Who is Heber the Kenite? Why is this story there? This is a watershed moment in the whole chapter. This is the fulcrum point of the whole chapter when we meet this unknown Heber the Kenite who's pitched this tent as far away as the Oak and Xanonim. Don't know where it is. Don't know, care, care where it is. But who is this guy? Look at this. This is so important to understanding the sovereignty of God. He's a Kenite. What's a Kenite? A Kenite is a non-Jew. That's real important. He ain't a Jew. He's not an Israelite. And he was living way down in an area called Midia. He was a Midianite. And he's decided to move. When did he make this decision? We don't know. But at some point in his life, he went to his wife and he goes, hey, we're moving. I'm sick of your in-laws. I don't want to live here anymore. I've got a job opportunity up in the north near Zananim, and we're moving. We're hauling. So pack your stuff. And they did. And they moved. And he relocated to this place called Zananim. Look at this. Just look at this map. He's way down by the Gulf of Araba, and he's going to move. Where's he going to move to? All the way past Edom, past Moab, past the Dead Sea, past the Sea of Galilee, all the way to the north in this area called Zananim. Why is that important? Because that's where all the action is taking place in this whole chapter. When did this guy make this decision? I don't know. Did he make the decision to move? Yes. But who's behind that decision? God. How do I know that? Well, let's just finish the story. Hazor is where the king lives, the Canaanite king. Heresheth Hagayim is where Sisera, the general, is. You see this little triangle of action that's going on here? And in between is the Kidron Valley where the battle's going to take place. See, God's arranging everything and everyone to accomplish his will. So what happens? Verse 12, Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone to Mount Tabor. Sisera does what he does. He calls out his chariots, 900 chariots, all his troops, and he meets them there. And what happens? They go to the river Kashan. And Deborah goes to, to, the, to Barak, and he, she says, "Up! Oh, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Go do what you've been called to do, what you've been challenged to do. So he does. He takes his 10,000 men, and what does it say? The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army. How in the world did that happen? Well, it clearly tells us it's the Lord that did it. It's the Lord that did it. It's the Lord that did it. The Lord is the one who did it. How did he do it? Well, don't forget that song that we looked at earlier. It says, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, why did he get out of his chariot? If you remember the song, it said God brought rain. The clouds opened up. And the rain came and it flooded the Kidron River, which flooded the Kidron Valley. And what do rain and chariots not have in common? Anything. See, it, it created a quagmire in that valley. The killing field that Barak thought it was going to be turned into a quagmire and a mud pit where all those 900 chariots got bogged down. And Sisera can no longer flee by chariot, he flees by foot. See, it's a hand of God. God brought the rain. God is sovereign. God is in control. And why is that important? Because it says he ran while Barak is killing the army of Sisera. They all fall by the edge of the sword. Not one man was left. Oh, yes, there was one. Who? Sisera. And guess what happens? He flees away on foot to the tent of Jael. Who the heck is Jael? Well, it tells us. She's the wife of Heber the Kenite. Oh, yeah. He's the guy that moved from down south up north and landed in a place called Zanonim. Not only that, he made peace with Jabin, the king of Hazor. He got in bed with the king of the Canaanites. So Sisera, out of his chariot, running for his life, runs to Zanonim, and he ends up at the tent of the wife of Heber the Kenite. Isn't that a coincidence? Isn't it funny how that works out? And she comes out and she says, turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. So he's turned aside and he goes into her tent. And what happens? This is fascinating to me. He flees on foot. He goes to this particular tent in a particular town occupied by a particular woman married to a particular man who was there for a particular reason. And it's all the sovereign will of God. And what does she do? She takes a tent peg and a hammer and she drives it through his temple. Here's what it says. J.L. quietly crept into him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand, and she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, and he died. Yay, died. He's nailed to the ground. Now, I don't know what this woman looked like, but she was not an 80-pound woman. This woman had some heft. This woman, to drive a tent peg through a man's brain cavity all the way into the ground on the other side, this woman was serious. Now, wait a minute. I thought they had an alliance with Heber. Her husband did. See, this was a house made up of a Democrat and a Republican, I guess. You know, they, they didn't see things eye to eye. And why did she do what she did? It's not, we're not told that she was a Hebrew. She wasn't. We're not told that she was a Yahweh follower. She probably wasn't. But something prompted her to do this. And she kills the enemy of the Israelites by driving a tent peg through his head. And Sisera is going to walk in. And she's gonna go, Oh, you're looking, or I mean, Barack's gonna walk in and he's gonna go, Have you seen Cicero? Oh, yeah, he's right over there. (laughs) And he's nailed to the ground. Listen to what the song in chapter five says about this woman Most blessed of women be JL. Remember what Deborah said to Barack? You're gonna get no glory. A woman's gonna get the glory. Here it is, it's in a song. Most blessed of women BJL, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. She sent her right hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. You think Deborah and Barak are trying to make a point here? Yeah. This incredibly powerful general is now dead by the hands of who? A woman. This is a song. Can you imagine? Hey, kids, come on. We're going to sing the song of J.L. It's great. It's great. Everybody do their, you know, we're going to harmonize. See, she's getting glory because she was right where she was supposed to be to do what God wanted her to do. See, guys, you are here for a reason. God wants to use you, but I'm going to close with this, and I want this to sink in like nothing has ever sunk into your brain cavity before, like a tent peg. (laughs) May all your enemies perish, O Lord. This is the last of her song. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. 20 years of suffering, 40 years of rest. But here's the key. It says, may all your enemies perish. And we read that, we go, yes. And we come up with a list of the enemies that we have that we want to perish. And yet it says, may your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. What I need you to really think about this morning are who are the enemies of God. Is it the liberals? Is it the progressives? Is it the Democrats? Is it the Republicans? Is it, you know, pick your party of choice. Pick your enemy of choice. Is it the Muslims? Is it the whoever's? Who is the enemy? Here's the scary part about this. It's not the Canaanites. The true enemy of God in this story is the Israelites. See, they stand opposed to God. And again, Daniel Bloch says this, an enemy of God is anyone whose actions and names run counter to Yahweh's agenda. If the Israelites persist in their apostasy and continue behaving like Canaanites, this virtual curse applies to them as well. They will become the enemies of God. So what do I do with that? What do you do with that? Are you God's enemy this morning? No, no, no. Here's, here, here's what you need to think about. Anytime you say no to God, you're his enemy. Anytime you stiff arm the will of God for your life, you become his enemy. Remember Peter, when he heard Jesus say, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be persecuted and I'm going to be crucified. What did he say to him? May it never be. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You have just aligned yourself with the enemy. See, when we say, but to God, no to God, maybe to God, later to God, we become enemies of God because we're stiff arming the will of God. But see, you're here for a reason. So here's what I need you to think about as you do this first question. In Matthew 12, 30, Jesus said, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. Anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. How do we do that? Every day, in some way, some form, some fashion. The characters in this story were providentially placed there by God. I hope I've shown that. What are some ways you have seen his providence in your own life? And as I said earlier, providence is best seen in retrospect, looking back. Man, that was God. I didn't see it at the time, but that was God. Then finally, of these three characters, Deborah, Barak, and Jael, which one do you relate to and mo- in, in, in why? Which one kind of resonates with you and why? Maybe you're the guy, like Barack who says, I will, but... Maybe you're Deborah and you just been doing your job for twenty years, and God uses you, and then you sing about the joy of that. Or maybe you're Jael; you don't know even know why you're here, but God is going to use you to accomplish His will. Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you that it's real; it's not uh, fiction. It's 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 historical. It took place. These are real people who lived in a real time in a real period, and we're used by you to accomplish your will. May you, Father, open our hearts, open our eyes, help us to understand that we are here for a reason, and you have great things you want to do through us. You want to use us. May we be faithful. May we say yes rather than yes but. May we just go and do what you've called us to do so that you can do your will because you're sovereign, and you will do your will but I would rather be part of the glory of being used by you. And I pray that be true of every man in this room. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.